We're in 1 Thessalonians. We're taking a few weeks here in January, in the first part of February, to talk about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you'll see throughout these two books, there's a main focus on the coming of Jesus Christ. He is coming again. I don't know when. I don't think we need a lot of, uh, of signs. But there are two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ that are mentioned in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. You'll see them intermittent. They don't always change. It's not always chronicled. At the same time, it's important. Someone said this, context. Uh, context is very important to solve scriptural perplexities and protect the Bible student from wrong assumptions. So many false doctrines have, taught, have been taught and propagated because things were taken out of context. And it, there are some reasons to look into that, and we're going to be taking a few, a few uh, weeks talking about 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But I want to just kind of give you just a little bit, just a quick scenario before we go into the scriptures tonight. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we okay? Can I move? Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Scott. I was kind of uh, wanting to know if people were just going to watch the empty pulpit there for a while there. Might have been the rapture of the church. You never know. But when you look at, uh, you look things, God created the world about 6,000 years ago. Of course, a flood 1,600 years later, and then the Lord Jesus comes. And that is uh, the Lord Jesus comes. And then since that time, it was about 2,000 years of time have gone by. And uh, we see here that we are now in the church age. We are in a time where I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again. And I don't know when he's going to come. I don't think he has a lot of things he has to wait for to come. He is waiting for one thing. That's the Heavenly Father to say it's time. And... When he comes, that's not something to be frightening to you and me. If we're saved, it is something that we're supposed to comfort ourselves together with. It's something we rejoice. We anticipate the coming of Christ. I do believe it's a doctrine that Satan hates. He doesn't like it. And he, it's interesting to me that I think the, the Apostle Paul, when he went to the church at Thessalonica, he taught them this. There are two cities and two churches that he wrote two letters to. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Both of them were heavily Jewish-influenced cities initially, because he would go to the Jew first, and then also the Greek. He would go to the synagogue and then share that. But there was a tremendous persecution in both of those cities, uh, in, but in, in Thessalonica and also in Corinth. In Corinth, uh, Paul had the commitment from the Lord. He would stay there in a year and a half, and no one would lay a hand on him. No one would hurt him there. There would be words said. There would be opposition, but it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be physically attacked with God's promise in the, book, in the, in the city of Corinth. However, those are the two books that God specifically gives us the doctrine of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one day, and I don't know when, but that is going to start. The Bible calls it, causes it the day of Christ. The day of Christ. Not to be confused with the day of the Lord. I believe those are two different concepts. The day of Christ speaks and is entered into at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that they'll be coming and then there'll be a judgment done. The day of Christ is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not something we should be nervous about. 
It is something that Paul talked about and told us we were supposed to look forward to it at the coming of Christ. And he's coming the first time for his saints. So we, he's not going to come to the earth. He's, we're going to meet the Lord where? In the air. So he's coming for his saints uh, the first time. Now, seven years later, he's going to come back with his saints. And that is really the truly second coming of Christ. Now, Jesus, when he spoke in Matthew 24, 25, and other places, and the Old Testament prophets were speaking in particular to the Jewish people. If you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, certainly those are the Gospels. But Matthew was written to the Jews as Jesus is king. And he is telling and foretelling that this second coming will be precipitated by a lot of signs and challenges. Okay, so the Lord Jesus is coming for his saints. That is the rapture of the church. That's when we're caught up. And 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is going to talk about that uh, somewhat. And it's going to talk about that second coming. And learning those two times, I think, is very important for us to understand the biblical truths there. The rapture of the church, anything to be afraid about there? Absolutely not. Uh, you'll see in chapter 5, you'll say, of the times and seasons, brother, there's no need that I write to you. Well, why doesn't he need to write to us about the times and the seasons? Because he's talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the church going to be during that second coming? Where are they going to be during that, that's all the signs with the, uh, the Antichrist setting up his, his rule? They're, not, they're going to be with the Lord. It won't even matter to you and I from, from a standpoint that we don't have to know all about that. Because that's going to already uh, be doing on the earth. So the first time he comes for his saints, the second time he comes with his saints. In between there, seven years of celebration for those of us who are saved and the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, during that seven years. On the earth, a far different story. Three and a half years where we have uh, the Antichrist is set up. We believe that, that there will be first a falling away, which means apostasy, people going away from the faith. That's happening right now. That's why I believe that the rapture could take place any time. And then after that, then the man of sin will be revealed. I don't think he has to be revealed before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chronologically, he'll come. Three and a half years, he's going to broker a peace plan with, um, with uh, Israel and the Antichrist. And he's going to produce some peace. And then three and a half years later, God's going to take away any restraint. He'll kick Satan out of heaven. He'll have no access to heaven. He'll be on the earth. And it looks like to me, that's when uh, his, his, his animosity and his wrath will be brought against the Jewish people in particular and the world as we know it. And he'll begin to turn off. He's going to have that. He's going to sacrifice and, and make himself as God in the temple. And we've got all kinds of problems. It's going to go downhill from there really fast for anybody, and especially for the Jewish people during that season. And then the Lord Jesus is going to come back with his saints to set up his 1,000-year uh, reign. I think the more I study this, the more I see God is just, he is very strategically and sweetly letting us know and giving us an inside track on things to come. Now, I can't tell you that I understand everything about prophetic themes. However, I do believe it's important. If it wasn't important, God wouldn't reference it. I, don't, I think in all of it is motivational. It's motivational. 
So, Pastor, why should I even care when the Lord comes? Well, there are, there are good reasons why we should care. And I ask you to do a little homework assignment. Several of you have texted me and told me you've successfully done that. Congratulations. Good job. But we find that the Lord Jesus is coming back. And in 1 Thessalonians, before God closes and Paul closes each of the chapters, he references the coming of the Lord. Let me just show it to you real quickly. You've got your Bible there, 1 Thessalonians. And let's go there if we can, please. And I want to just point out a couple references to that. Uh, Chapter 1, verse number 10. And I want you to read it with me, would you please? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So he he references waiting for his son from heaven. That's a reference to the rapture. Chapter 2, verse number 19. Follow along and read it with me, would you please? For what is our hope or our joy, our crown of rejoicing, are not everyone ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when? At his coming. Chapter 3, verse number 13. To the end he may establish your hearts, unblameable holiness before God, uh, even the Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. And of course, he is coming back to heaven with his saints in that reference. And that is a reference to the rapture and not the second coming. We see in chapter 4, and then you're going to see here is that he's going to give a little bit more in depth about that. Verse 15, and this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Whose word do you have on it? God's word. That we which are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall not present them, prevent them which are asleep. Chapter 5, verse 23, where the Bible says, In the very word, God of peace, sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body. It's interesting, when we talk about a trinity of a man, we say body, soul, spirit. The Lord says spirit, soul, body, and by the way, that's the best way to live in that order. Uh, be, sur- be preserved blameless till unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are just five references that speak of the rapture of the church that God has planned for us. But what's the big deal about that? Well, let's look, if we can, please take your Bibles, hold your place there, and turn to 1 John chapter 3. Would you please turn to 1 John chapter 3. And the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ... This is uh, one of the things that should motivate us to do. Verse number 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, that when the Lord comes back, we shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. So in reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he said, we know that when he comes, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. Look at verse number three and read it out loud with me to everyone together. And every man that hath this hope. What does the Bible say? If you have the hope of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it cause you to do? To live a pure, holy life. By the way, can I just tell you an inside track here? You, no one else can live a pure life for you. And you can't live for somebody else. If you're, if you're, going, to, you've, if you're going to walk with God, you have to do that. If you're going to live pure, no one else. You can't say, well, I'm going to have my wife live pure for me today. She can't do it. Can't live pure for your wife. Can't live pure for your kids. Kids, your mom and dad can't live pure for you. Only You can do that for you. He said, one of the things that motivates us to live pure in our morals and our motives is an understanding that Jesus is coming again. It could be at any time. 
Let's look real quickly at another Titus chapter 2. Can we look at that? I, I shared this with you the other day, but uh, the, the word rapture is not in our Bible, neither is the word trinity. It's not in our Bible, but we know what trinity means, and the rapture means to be caught away, to be caught up, to be with the Lord. Well, with that in mind, let's look real quickly at what I do believe the Bible calls the rapture here is the blessed hope. It's another name for the rapture, the blessed hope, the anticipation of the coming of the Lord. Let's look, if we can, please, Titus chapter 2. We'll begin at, uh, if we can, at verse number 11. For the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, hath appeared to how many men? Amen. So it's, grace is not irresistible. Everybody has an opportunity. God has extended his grace to you and I. And he said, the grace of God, which uh, has appeared to all men, that brings us salvation. So the first thing the grace of God does is save a man, save the woman. Uh, for by are ye saved through faith, okay? God's grace, grace in, simplest, in simple terms is by God's supernatural help. You're going to say, what does grace mean? Well, you can say whatever you want to do. I know they have acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good acrostic. Or some people say grace is unmerited favor. I prefer that grace is God's uh, supernatural help. It's by God's grace that we're saved. Someone else said the grace is the desire and the will and the ability to do what God wants you to do. And I think all those are fine. I just like to think about grace and it's something God does. It's God's work that gives salvation. We put our faith in God's work to be saved. Well, the grace of God, which brings salvation, had appeared to all men. Look at the next verse. It doesn't just die out once someone is saved. Would you read the first word of verse 12, would you? Teaching. So grace of God not only saves a man, saves a woman, but it sets up a classroom in their heart. How many of you are teachers or may one day want to be or be a Sunday school teacher, a school teacher? Would you raise your hand? I had the joy to do that several years as a school teacher and then was a Sunday school teacher. And I thank God for teachers. But the Bible says grace doesn't just save a man. It does, for by grace you save, it's appeared to all men that way. However, it sets up a classroom. What does it teach a human being who has been saved by its grace? Look here, if you would please, it says, it teaches us to deny, and denying what? Denying anything that's not God-like. If God's not for it, then I'm not for it. If God's against it, so am I. If it's ungodly, let's deny it. And worldly lust. When you see the word lust in your Bible, it doesn't always mean sexual or sensual. But it does mean desires, worldly desires. I got it in me and you've got it in you. And we have aptitudes and interest in, into knowing and wanting things in this world. We want, to, we want to blend in. We don't want to stand out. That's a real problem inside of me. When you go to this world's activities, there's, there's a part of you that wants to just to blend in and not to stand out in your attitude, in your actions, in your, and to talk to someone, to witness to someone. How oftentimes I've been afraid to witness uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ and because I don't know what people are going to say. I wish I had more boldness and there have been times I've had more boldness than others. But there's a tendency inside of me to want to blend in. He said, we've we got to watch out because it'll teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Look at the next one, if we can, please. It says here that we should live how? 
Soberly, the word soberly means with purpose. Somebody who, does not, who is intoxicated does not walk on purpose, does not talk on purpose. He's all over the place. And, but you and I who are Christians, you ought to remind yourself. And one of the things we see in the book of Titus over and over again, older women live soberly. Older men live soberly. Younger women live soberly. Younger men live soberly. That means live with purpose. Has it ever occurred to you that one of the main buzzwords of society is whatever? You know what whatever is? It's the opposite of sobriety. Sarah, Sarah, doesn't matter. The world wants you to think you don't matter. The world doesn't matter. Nothing matters. It's just all just whatever. And the truth of the matter is, is the opposite. God said, now listen, the grace of God is going to teach you to deny ungodliness, to live uh, without worldly desires, and to live soberly and righteously in this present world. Now look at the next thing it says there in verse number 12. Would you read it with, or verse 13, ready? Looking for that. And the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, should we be afraid about that? No, we should anticipate it. It's a blessed hope. It's the glorious appearing. It's the day of Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And so he's the one who started the salvation plan, purifying to himself a peculiar people, zealous of what? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ should provoke us to continue and to serve the Lord more faithfully in his, in his plan. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians, if you would, please. And I want you to look, if you would, please, at the first chapter one more time before we go to chapter 2. Verse number 3, what will you be remembered for? What were they remembered for? Without ceasing. Verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, the faith that works. A love that labors, a labor of love, and patience of hope. And this is talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should motivate us to live pure, to live soberly, to live righteously. It should call us to be pure, and it should be something that causes us to continue on through difficult times. Patience, it means perseverance. It means to keep going. Why? Because I have a guarantee. I have a hope. Jesus said, if I go, I will what? Come again. We have that promise from God. That's not something I could promise you or you could promise me. It's promised by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, if I go, I will come again. And the anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rapture for the church is motivating for us. Now, the book of 1 Thessalonians, we believe to be the first book that Apostle Paul wrote, or the first letter that God chose to put into the Bible. I imagine he wrote lots of letters in his time. But the Lord very, by, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, put some of them in our Bibles. Usually the Apostle Paul uses the first part of his, of his books to give doctrinal clarity and then practical application. If you read the book of Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Almost any of his books, he'll, he'll lay out doctrinal uh, lessons and then make practical application. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, he kind of flip-flops that a little bit. He, he, once again, his background with this church is that he was in, in uh, Philippi. He's picked up Titus, excuse me, Timothy at Lystra. 
Silas left from, from Antioch with him, and he comes. He meets Timothy. Timothy's a young man, has a good testimony uh, from his, from his uh, community and from the Christian community. People are saying, that guy loves the Lord. He's a young man. By the way, every young man and woman ought to have a good testimony. He had a good testimony, and it really set him up for Paul to say, hey, why don't you go with us? And he went with him. Well, they went to Philippi. They stayed there some time. Now, Philippi, at Philippi, there was not a synagogue. There was not a large consecration of Jewish people. Probably Lydia and her husband were Jewish. And if there were not ten, at least 10 families to set up a synagogue, uh, Jewish people would go on the Sabbath day near a body of water. And he went down there and he saw Lydia and her girlfriends praying. And prayers are being made down by that river or wherever they went. And Paul went up, approached them, began to realize they had spiritual interests, shared the gospel with them. Lydia and her girlfriends got saved. No doubt her husband came to know Christ. And he stayed in that community many days aggravated by a demon-possessed damsel or young lady who was being prostituted for her abilities to, to know things about people by people who were making money off of her. And after many days, uh, Paul, uh, being aggravated by her, finally said, okay, enough's enough, you're coming out. And when he came out, exactly what happened, I'm sure he knew. You know, it, there's some wisdom about when to confront problems. I don't know if I know all that wisdom. I'm sure he could have quickly turned on her the first day that she aggravated him and said, you knew exactly what he was dealing with. He could have said quickly right then, but the Bible says after many days, he came to her and said, you know what? You're, the demon, you're coming out of her. And it did. And she was happy, but those who prostituted her gifts were not happy. Hit them in the pocketbook. They went downtown and they stirred up the, uh, the magistrates and the people and they arrested them took them down there without a trial, began to pull their clothes off and began to beat them publicly uh, without a trial. And they were both Roman citizens. They would find out the next morning about that and would cause them a lot of trouble. But that night, of course, the Philippian jailer gets saved. His family gets saved. They get baptized. And then the magistrates send word down to the jail, tell those guys who beat yesterday to come back and get out of town, never come back. And he said, not so fast. We're Roman citizens. You publicly embarrassed us. You beat us without a trial. If you want us to leave, you come down and let us out. And I think that's where a lot of mission support money got given to them, as my guess, uh, as they came down from the magistrates, came down realizing they would be in problem with Rome if they found out they did not follow the rules with people who had papers. And they and, and Paul and Silas had papers, and, and uh, they were in trouble. They escorted them out. They went to Lydia's house for a little bit, and then they made their way to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, the Bible tells us they were there for less than a month, three Sabbath days, three uh, days. They went to a synagogue, which was, uh, there was a good contingency of Jewish people there. And many people believed, and a lot of Greeks believed, and some chief women believed, and, and not just a few, a good number of people believed. But the Jewish, um, the Jewish, ardent Jewish people, the Orthodox Jews who rejected Christ as the Messiah, they stirred it up. And they hired lewd men of baser sort. And, uh, and tried to run them out of town. The, the new converts that were just with Paul, just for a few weeks, said, Paul, you need to leave, or they're going to come after you. They're going to come and start, they're going to start physically hurting you. In the middle of the night, the new converts escorted him out of the city, and he and Silas and Timothy went on to the next town, Berea. When they went to Berea, they, they of course, um, uh, had the same problem after they were there a while. These the men followed them over there, caused some problems over there, and Paul... Uh, went on to Athens and sent Timothy and Silas back to the new converts 
uh, for sure at Thessalonica and probably also at Berea, and they begin to work with them. And they came back with a report. Timothy came back with a report to tell them how they were doing. And, uh, and he reiterated what he taught them while he was with them. And one thing about uh, uh, prophecy is that oftentimes people think, oh, no, it's so scary. You don't certainly want to teach new believers that. But Paul did not believe that. He gave the new believers a whole bucket full of information, and especially the anticipation of the coming of Christ. And I think because of the large Jewish congregation that was there, and those that knew the Old Testament, the prophecies of Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, and uh, the Old Testament prophecies, he taught them about uh, the second coming of Christ when he comes back with his saints, and you'll see it intermixed there. Our time will be short tonight, but let's go through chapter number two, as it's a little bit more personal in nature, but let's look at it if we can, please, and then uh, we'll continue to make our way through these passages of Scripture. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong uh, the wrong. Uh, book there. Thank you. Let's try chapter 2, verse 1 again in First Thessalonians. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance un, in unto you that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before, that we were shamefully entreated, as you know in Philippi, I just referenced that, and we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. It wasn't easy, but we kept getting the gospel to you. For our exhortation was not of deceit or uncleanness or of guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Verse number five, read it out loud with me, would you please? For neither at any time as a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. And once again, just a reminder, we talked about this. We need to give a pure gospel, and we need to be pure givers of the gospel. Uh, you don't need to trick people into getting saved. You don't need to trick someone into getting them to pray a prayer. It's just give them what the Bible says. And he says, when we came, we didn't come to you with deceit. Uh, nothing aggravates me more than to, to, to be with someone who is just not being truthful. I think you know, the gospel will stand by itself. It does not need any dog and, shony, uh, dog and pony show. It doesn't need any, any uh, bait. It just, you need to be, you, I think you ought to be wise, and the Bible tells us we ought to be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. But when it comes to giving the gospel, just share the truth simply and purely. Oftentimes I'll ask someone before I share the gospel with them, I listen, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the gospel with you. Let me just tell you this. If you want me to stop, you, I'm not a slick salesman. I'm just one beggar to another beggar where he found some food. If you need me to stop, I'll, I'll respect you. I'm not going to try to railroad you into things. Uh, you let me know what you need. I want to I explain to you. I want to be clear with what I'm explaining to you. And I'm, I'm telling you, friends, there's nothing quite as, as wonderful to know that God did the work with his gospel. And it didn't have to have me tricking someone or, or trying to get, I don't think that's neat. And he says, look, we gave you a pure gospel and we gave you pure people. We weren't trying to get something from you. We were trying to give you something. We didn't have a spirit of covetousness. And of course, if you look at the television, you look at things. I was just the other day over, over the Christmas break and I watched some kind of religious program. And the truth of the matter is, um, they, gave, they, they had a whole service, didn't give the gospel, and then kept selling several things at the end of the broadcast. And it about drove me crazy, thinking about what, what, they're, what are they doing. But no wonder unsaved people can look at that and say, these guys are covetous. 
He said, that's not how we came to you. And this is just simple thing. He's telling them practically how he came to them. Let's continue, if we can, please, verse number 6. Nor of men sought we glory. So we weren't trying to, to try to get, get a notch in our belt or other people to praise us, nor yet of others that we might not be burdensome to you, burdensome as apostles of Christ. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cares with you. Like a little nursing mom cares for a baby, we were careful with you. So being affectionate desirous of you, we really loved you a lot. Affectionate desirous is what it means. We were willing to impart unto you not only the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear to us. And you see a deep love that Apostle Paul had for these people. Verse number 9. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. He says, we knew that you would be looking for angles on us. And that's why he, he said we worked on our own job night and day so we could take time to give you the gospel. Now, once again, I do believe there's nothing wrong with people who preach the gospel, living the gospel. But Paul was in the groundwork and the pioneer work of working with, new, with unsaved people who had a Greek mind, who also were looking with, with great skepticism toward his, his message. Let's continue on if we can, please. Verse number 10. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holy and justly and unblameable we behaved ourselves among you that believe. And ye know... How we exhorted, and he uses some great words here, exhorted, comforted, and charged. Each of those encouraged, um, comforted, giving, giving, giving comfort, charged. That's kind of getting your face and told you like a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Now, verse number 13, he said, while I was with you, we were, we were tender like a nurse. We were, we were adamant and, and, uh, and corrective like a father, but we cared about you. You were important to us. Verse 13, for this cause also we thank God without ceasing. We, we don't want to stop. We continue to pray. He's going to give us an insight to his prayer. Because ye received the word of God that ye heard of us, ye received it not as words of men, but as is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you to believe. Verse number 14, read it with me, would you please? For ye, brethren, became, which is in Judea, are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and persecuted us, they please not God and are contrary to all men. By the way, have you ever, you know, when you're going through a difficult time, you find out someone else is going through a difficult time, it kind of encourages sometimes. You don't want anybody to go through a difficult time, but if you find somebody who is, you're sick, and your family has been sick, like, oh, you know what's been through, you're doing better, okay, well, I, that makes you feel better. He said, well, the people of uh, this, this persecution that you're experiencing by these lewd men of baser sort, our, our other brothers and sisters have, have done this in Judea. They've already been through this. And he said they, they're, they're having the same thing. So what you're going through is not unique. By the way, one thing we learn from the scriptures is there's no problem or temptation taking us, but such is common. God is faithful. Every problem you go through, you're not the only one to ever go for that problem. How many times I've sat with people in difficult times. I remember Miss Jacinta when uh, her husband passed away. And, and I remember telling her at the bedside there, whenever he was going to die that night, his aneurysm had taken on. They said he's not going to live long. I said, Jacinta, I'm so sorry. But millions of girls have gone through this kind of a night and difficult things. And uh, God helped them. He's going to help you. 
And whatever you're going through, you can know you're not doing it solo. You never, you're not the only one. You won't be the last one to go through those problems. He says the other people went through it. But I want you to notice another thing real quickly. If you would please, verse number 15, 16. Forbidding us, is, these are the people who persecuted, to speak to the Gentiles for they might be saved. And to fill up their sins always for the, for, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoring the more abundantly to see your face and desire more. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But who is involved in hindering him? Satan. Satan hates the gospel. He hates uh, when people work with new believers. He said, Satan, we, I'm trying to get to you, but Satan keeps hindering us. Verse 19, read it with me, would you please? For what is our or... Or are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our joy, our glory and joy. There's a couple of things I want you to notice, and we'll talk about this later. So I want you to notice real quickly, when you read through 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, you'll find the word saved or salvation. Now, let me just tell you a little secret about that word. It doesn't always mean save from my sin that would send me to hell. And you're going to find that in there. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where it speaks about how that when men ought to pray everywhere, lift up holy hands. And then women ought to pray with modest apparel and shamefacedness. And then it says there, uh, and they can be saved through childbearing and being keepers at home. Well, does that mean that, that girls get saved by having children and taking care of their house? No. It's talking about saved from the deception that's there from deliverance. And many times the word saved and salvation in your Bible, and you'll find it almost every time in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, it's not talking about being saved from our sin. It's talking about being saved from the wrath to come that's going to come upon this world. Uh, in the second coming, not the first, but the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little bit in context Seeing it in context will help us. That's just a little bit of thing we'll talk about in time to come. I'll show you each of those five places where save and salvation, but some of you can find that out. And you'll see it's in reference, not being saved from our sin, but being saved from the wrath that's going to come upon the, wor the world in that second coming. I believe that's to be the case. However, I want you to notice in closing tonight that the, in light of the second coming, one thing you'll want is a joy and crown and glory. Now, I don't exactly understand everything that's going to happen with the crowns and that, that kind of a thing. I do believe that crowns represent authority, and anyone who has authority has a little bit more decision-making in what takes place. And I think God has said that he says, someone is faithful in this lifetime, I'm going to make him ruler in much. And you're going to live here maybe 70 years. There's going to be a thousand years reign with the Lord. During that time, I do believe that God has something very special entailed for people who are faithful, awaiting for that blessed hope and living in such a way that would glorify the Lord. But one thing you want to do in this lifetime is get people the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can just imagine, well, pastor, here you go again, soul winning. You know what, you know what, the, you know what Apostle Paul said there? He said, you know what my joy and my crown is at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's you. It's people that I sat down with and got the gospel to. 
It's people that got saved because of my giving, my prayer, because of my influence. It's that gospel track I gave. It's that person I sat down with and had a burden with. Listen, one thing at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is you're going to be very glad you did is if you and I are soul conscious. Because people, we have an opportunity to share the gospel with. I, I, I was listening to one of our soul winners, Brother Tim Ray. He and his wife Brenda went to an assisted living home. And they asked, could we get one hour a week just to, to have a Bible study? So they gave him, and they said, Brother Tim, is, he's going to have, Tim Ray is going to do religious reading <laughs> for one hour. And so people came, and they listened to the religious reading. And he read the gospel presentation from the Bible. At the end, four people looked at him and he said, what do you think we ought to do? And one lady said, I think I need to be saved. One man said, yeah, I think I'm good. I'm a pretty good person. He wasn't ready to be saved. The other person said, I think I already did that. I am saved. And the other person said, I'm not saved. Two of the four people got saved. You know, there's something very special about that. Something very special when someone gets saved. You know what they become? They become the joy and glory and crown of people who share the gospel. God saves everybody. But you want to be involved with God. And you can be. It's much more a passion than it is a method. And one thing as we approach the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to wait for his son from heaven, he says in context, he said, you that have been saved and have been discipled and have grown the Lord and you've received the word of God under much persecution, you're our joy and crown. I want to encourage you, Christian, don't, especially in 2022, there are uh, 7.8 billion people that live on our planet. Somebody would listen to you tell them about how to be saved. If you and I would get a burden and ask, can I show you? Can we talk about this? I think you'll find there'll be your joy and crown.